Kimberly here. This is Macabish, cults, classics, and horrors. We're talking films, series, books, and life, and we're starting right now. I was going to say, talking more about um, about the purgation and the overall production. What um, what was your timeline when it came to like your initial inception of the idea, through to where you got to a point where you said this is a, this is now my completed project. I'm satisfied with it, and it went out for distribution. What what kind of timeline was like? Were we were you looking at with um, with that? How long did something like that take? And what kind of pitfalls or, or roadblocks did you encounter that you had to really work and struggle to get through? I would say total time commitment was around three years. It took me one year to write and develop the script. I think I went through almost 10 different drafts of it. I did a bunch of table reads with friends um, and, and I had a bunch of like uh, professional writer friends who, you know, basically broke it down for me and gave me some really harsh advice. I had one guy, um, Julian, who was amazing. He basically was like, cut the first 10 pages, cut this character. This doesn't make sense. And um, yeah, Carlos, if you have, you know, a good friend who's an excellent writer who can do that for you and just be super blunt, you definitely need that at the beginning stage. So you have a solid script because it's really all about the story. Um, one, you have to love it. And two, it has to be good. Otherwise, um, you know, it's just not worth your time and energy to pursue the project. So yeah, that was my first year, just getting a really good screenplay finished. And because I had so many people who were interested in it and liked the story, it was easier to get friends and friends of friends excited to want to work on it for, um, you know, in exchange for favors. And um, it got enough people to donate money to help, you know, fund and finance the movie as well. So it took about a year to actually shoot the movie. Um, physically we shot it in about 21 days, but we also had to like, you know, cast it, find the locations and then, you know, go through post-production. So all in all, it took about a year. And then it took another year of festivals and, um, trying to sell the movie at film markets before it got distribution. So yeah, Carlos, I would, I would commit to taking three years out of your life to make- <laughs> Well, how intrusive is it at that point when once you're done your movie and let's say, OK, now I just need to sell it basically and I'm going to take it on the circuit, uh, to festivals and whatever. Um, but you still have your own things to worry about, like bills and work and jobs. Like, does it like intrude on all of that or like do you take a certain amount of time out to go do these things? Great question. So when I was writing it, I was still working full time um, as a teacher and a production assistant. I had to take off about two months from work just to, you know, physically shoot the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, once we wrapped, you know, it was easier to get back um, to my full-time job because post-production was something I kind of like schedule around that. And then during the year when I was looking for distribution, you know, I was still working full-time as well. You, you kind of, you have less sleep and you have less time to spend with your friends and family, but mm. it's a sacrifice. Yeah. You know, I felt like it was worth it for me. I think the biggest sacrifice, unfortunately, was my romantic relationship. I think um, that did not continue after the movie, unfortunately. Yeah, I can see how it would get in the way, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I don't know if you're married or dating, but uh, you know, that's something 
that does take a toll on relationships. Do you think your second movie will be easier and possibly quicker to do because you've already done it and made connections and like you know what to do and possibly who to talk to and the channels to go through? I think I will make less mistakes for sure. I don't think it'll necessarily take less time. It, it does take a while to write a good screenplay and, you know, and beyond just writing it, it takes time to revise it. So I, I still think it would take about three years, but mm. I would be better during the filming process because I think I was still very green and new to being on set. And now after years of, you know, being in LA and, and working on television sets, I, I know what to do. So I would save a lot of time in that sense and, you know, not fucking up. Sorry if it's not allowed to swear. But, <laughs> but, you know, I think making mistakes is very costly and it does um, create problems. So if you are able to get experience on, you know, professional film sets before diving into a movie, you know, that can only help you. Well, working on, in television, was that uh, before or after purgation? Um, I had worked in television as a production assistant before purgation, but I had not worked as an assistant director. So like, you know, a higher position. So mm-hmm. I, I think I, I've gained more experience working in film since that movie. And, you know, I got those jobs, you know, through the movie as well, because once you have that on your resume, a lot more doors definitely open for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we noticed too, when I posted excision, we all, we all watched that movie after Patrick mentioned it. And then we noticed you worked on it. Oh my gosh, you guys are so good at looking at uh, details. Uh, yes, I was the second second assistant director on that film, and um, it was it was definitely a, a very difficult project to work on. But I'm glad I I was part of it because I made so many friends. The um, the story it's like it's fascinating, isn't it? Right? Oh yeah, it really is. And um, I got to work with so many amazing actors too. That movie is packed with the best when your audience is horror fans that's what we're looking for we like to unwind it all we 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 want to we're not just digging into the story we want the backstory we want to know all the people involved we want the movie maker what were you thinking how did you get into this all of it we like to like string it all together it's not just the movie for us we're not done with it once the movie's over Right. So that's how come we know. I have to ask Kimberly, I think I met you through, um, you know, social media, but yes. I actually don't know um, how you got started in film. So I'm, I'm just a fan who loves the art and I like to interact with other people who love the art. Well, thank you for asking me to do this podcast and for creating this space. Um, like you said, I think 2020 was a very difficult year and 2021, you know, as well. And it's really nice of you to create the space for you know fans to come together um especially during these difficult times i think what's interesting is that even with this pandemic a lot of people don't want to talk about it it's it's almost a little taboo right unless you're at the right circle of people who are willing to go dark right like i'm always the one person during my work meetings who makes those dark jokes and actually brings up the news but i do think that most people are uncomfortable talking about the darker side of life mm-hmm. Sure. And it's horror fans that are okay of it, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the way we interact with the world is just different. Even our humor, just to laugh at something that's kind of terrible, that's not a thing most people do or appreciate. But we do. We It's just part of the DNA, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. 
in improv, there's this phrase, truth and comedy. And I think it kind of pertains to horror as well. It's, it's truth and horror. You know, we can laugh at it because we understand the reality of it. And it's, it's, it's funny. And yes, it may be a coping mechanism, but at least we're not wearing blinders. That's true. Well, I think as, um, as genres, film genres, TV genres, book genres, whatever, um, horror and, and humor really tickle the same part of the mind. Uh, it, 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 that's why they go so well together. That's why you have things like um, Reanimator, which is just—I mean, it's both horror and comedy. Actually, most of most anything that Brian Usner or Stuart Gordon have done, it's both horror and comedy. You have—you know—Freddy Krueger becomes more and more humorous as the series goes on. They really—they blend together very, very well because the—they—I think—they trigger the same emotional response in in horror fans not necessarily in the general populace but in in horror fans and in people who appreciate horror horror and comedy trigger the same emotional response and it releases the same endorphins as you're experiencing it right and correct me if i'm wrong with the science but i feel like it's um the same part of the brain right where you feel the emotion of horror and laughter as well and that's why sometimes i believe so yeah yeah it triggers the same um, it triggers the same chemical reaction, just it, it, from a different um, from a different stimulus. Mm. Yeah, and that's why sometimes when you're watching something and you start laughing like crazy, you eventually start crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you could see something terrible, like somebody falling down a flight of stairs. They have hurt themselves horribly, but everything in you might want to laugh. <laughs> babies laugh. They can't help yeah. it. They're just babies. Fall down a flight of stairs. That baby's gonna laugh. And it's, it's yeah, well, the same it's, thing. Yeah, and it's it, that's where that's the whole science behind slapstick comedy. That's where it right. comes from. It's it, it's laughing at the pain of others. Right. And at, at least you know when you're watching the the slapstick comedies, you're watching Airplane, you're watching The Naked Gun, you're watching Charlie Chaplin, The Three Stooges. They go through all of these horrible physical injuries, and then they just get up and the, like the very next scene, they're perfectly fine. There's no mark on them. There's nothing. You know, maybe their shirt is torn, but even then, a scene later, it's fine. There's something very freeing in watching tragedy happen in a movie, but you know everything's fine. No one's really dead. The stuff didn't really happen. Everything's fine. You're fine. It's fine. Because life can be full of horror, and we all know that. Like, I would come back. I did a lot of, uh, people don't realize because I didn't put it on my social media, but I did a lot of protesting last year for like six weeks. And I'd come home, and I'd put the movies in, and I would immediately just feel better post and you know i got a lot oh you're you're black why aren't you posting more about what's going on and all that but for me horror social media that's an escape that's where i escape too because life is hard i think a lot of those topics too are so fraught like you, you can barely have a conversation even with somebody who's on your side without it turning into a problem you know in the space of horror we're all good and that's nice yeah, I love that. Kimberly, I'm curious, how were the protests over where you were in Austin? Because in Los Angeles, um, yeah, I also went out to protest it and it was an amazing experience. But I feel like months later now, everything has kind of died down and people have lost interest. And it's like the momentum was there and then it kind of died out. Right. Thousands of people protesting for months and months mm-hmm. and months. And then there's a lot of work being done in city halls now that weren't being done before. They're taking down a lot of monuments celebrating white supremacy. In a lot of ways, the other protests turned into 
people going to City Hall and talking to their local governments and actually changing things that are a problem. So that's good. I mean, is, isn't that why we did it, to bring the causes to light and to get people to act, to actually do something about the problems? I think that's what's happened. I hope it continues because 2020 was everyday protests and worldwide. That was, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I can't believe there are people in like the Arctic and Antarctica, you know, that are participating as well on global. But I, I think you have a very positive way of looking at it. I like that. I think for me, I was just like, are we actually going to see any real change or is this just all talk? And I think in LA, um, you know, we've had a lot of more diversity initiatives in Hollywood to get more representation of um, people of color on screen and behind the camera. Um, so I, I hope, you know, that actually happens, though, and it's not just studios jumping on the bandwagon and trying to show that they're diverse, and because they're diverse, they can't be racist. And right, I think it's up to minorities, all of us, we have to create our own spaces, whatever it is. You want to make a movie, and you're Latin, you're Black, you're a woman, whatever, make the movie. You want a podcast, make your podcast. Don't, we have to stop waiting for other people to make the space for us. We have to do it ourselves. Well, I and, mean, even if it's even if it's uh, just giving lip service for, for studios uh, and jumping on the bandwagon for a little bit, it's still giving a voice for, even if it's a small window to these other filmmakers or actors or whoever, uh, people of color or whoever. And with that little window, they could take that and explode, right? And then go off sure. and do their own thing, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think once uh, once audiences start to see that there, I mean, there is this this massive wealth of talent and knowledge and skill that went for years untapped. As an audience, I think once we start to see that, and once we start to be able to to actually appreciate what can come out of some of these more diverse cultures, I think once we start to see that, and once we start to actually experience that that market is going to start to grow because it's, it's going to be a situation of exposure. And once the exposure starts and once the audience starts to build for it, there's going to become more and more demand for films and audio and books and music and everything from everywhere worldwide. And if anything in 2020, like you were saying, where the protests became global, 2020 has really proven to everybody that the world is a much smaller place than we thought it was. And we need to be able to work these initiatives globally, locally to start, and but globally is, is where the changes are going to happen. I'm a big fan of Jordan Peele and Monkey Paw Productions, and I feel like he's definitely someone who I admire, and I, I, I can't wait for his next film. His next one is um, New Candyman, I think, is was supposed to come out last year. And right. I've been waiting very impatiently for that because that's a that's a movie series that I've loved since um, the inception when Bernard Rose did the first one. And as both Kim and Carlos know, I'm a huge fan of Clive Barker and, and Barker's work. So anything based on Barker's work, I'm all over. I remember watching the original Candyman as a 10-year-old and it gave me nightmares for days. And I'm so excited <laughs> for the version. Yeah, I'm very excited for it. And it has um, a woman director as well. Jordan Peele has been very great about, you know, giving opportunities to more women and women of color to direct. And that's, I love that. So do I. 
it blows my mind that like Jordan Peele came basically from comedy and mm-hmm. he just dove right into the horror world and like it's such complex and cerebral stuff that he's making and through that he he's massive he's huge he's got so much respect and power now in film and he's sticking with horror like he's choosing to stay with it like I, I would have thought he would just use that as a stepping stone since he's such a big name right I think we still underestimate horror, even as fans, because we're just so used to horror being underestimated and horror fans being underestimated. I think more fans will go into making movies because we're going to want to make the movies we want to see. And I also think, especially as minorities, we do need to just start diving into stuff, even if we don't feel like we belong there or we don't fit in there. You're talking about him coming from comedy. Go for it. That's kind of how I felt when I was starting a podcast. I'm like, who am I? I'm like, but why not me? People can listen or not. And there's going to be people that have something to say, but aren't there always? You could go to school forever. You can get a PhD in horror and some, someone will say <laughs> something. Like, what school offers that course? I want to take it. I don't know. <laughs> I want to teach it. <laughs> you should. That um, would be awesome. Horror 101. <laughs> Carlos, did you go to film school or um, like what got you into filmmaking? Uh, I didn't actually. I uh, Years ago, I was saving up money for film school um, and uh, being the, the protagonist that I am, I ended up just putting it off and watching way too many behind the scenes features uh, <laughs> told me, hey, you don't have to go to film school. You'll learn everything you need to know in the first couple of weeks of filming something. <laughs> So I said, all right, I don't need to go to film school. Uh, And then again, because I'm a protagonist, I just never actually dove right into it. A lot of it had to do with not having the the connections. But yeah, now I'm I'm trying to fully pursue it. And I think I will be going to the film school up here. Uh, I'm just trying to choose which one I'm going to go to and try to work out the minutia of it. Right. I never went to film school either. So I would agree that it's not necessary. But if you're able to go to film school, I mean, it will give you the connections that you'll need to, you know, jumpstart your career. Because if you don't get that through film school, you have to do it organically by moving to Los Angeles or New York and just really putting yourself out there. And for someone like me, who's a bit more introverted, you know, that can be very challenging. Exactly. Like you, I'm, I'm very introverted. And I have trouble just opening up and connecting with people. So that's been a big issue for me. Um, but like you said, that's that's the biggest part of film school from what I see is ma- meeting people and getting little crews and having connections, right? Yeah. We're all introverts here. That's very interesting. A lot of, a lot of the horror community is very introverted. That's true. Yeah, you really have to have the confidence to fail and like fail epically and be okay with mm-hmm. it. You know, right. with probation, I made so many mistakes. Um, there were plenty of times when I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to, we're not going to be able to finish this. You know, they're going to shut this movie down. You know, we didn't get a permit for this location or this actor, you know, bailed because he got cast in a television show. That actually happened to us like the oh. day before filming. Um, <laughs> one of the actors who was supposed to play Derek, he got cast in a television show and I was very happy for him. Um, but it also meant that we had to recast that character within 24 hours. Wow. 
Yeah, but it worked out because um, the actor we ended up getting, Tom, was amazing. And he actually was a better match for his child counterpart. They actually looked more alike. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I I noticed almost right away with with the purgation is the the actors you had as the children and the actors you had as the adult versions, they really looked like grown-up versions of their child counterparts. And like just watching that, I thought like I believed that ten-year-old Iris grew up to be twenty-five-year-old Iris. I, I honestly believe that they were the same person. Thank you. Yeah, that was all because of casting. I think um, I was very lucky to be able to cast in Los Angeles because there's so many talented actors and um, you know so many more people to pull from. I think it would have been harder to make this movie if I cast it in you know Wisconsin, where the story actually took place. And I loved. Can I just say? I loved Iris. Most movies, it's all white people. And it'll be like a token somebody. And I just love minority and female minority leads that actually last a while. They're not just there to like get naked and get killed. (laughs) So I really appreciated that. And what's a shame is I was watching it and I realized that. And I was like, kind of sucked. And that's why I watch so many foreign movies and post so many foreign movies. There is some great acting going on around there. So yeah. I really appreciated all the people that are normally tokens. They're up front. I love that. Thank you. It was definitely a struggle just to cast um, an Asian American lead. I think one of my producers, he cautioned against it because he was afraid that the movie would not be marketable without a white lead, honestly. But why? Um, I think things have changed. I mean, we shot Purgation five years ago, and this was before Crazy Rich Asians and um, Parasite, which I think has made it more legitimate to have Asian actors on screen. But even when I sold the movie, the original poster had Iris, you know, um, front and center. But the people that uh, wanted to distribute the movie, they said that poster, you know, would make it seem like it was a foreign movie. And... I would get less views because of that, because people would be like, oh, this must have subtitles, you know, even though it is an American movie. So they actually redesigned the poster to have um, Marlene, who is, you know, the young white girl, a wonderful actress, but she's not the lead actor. So it was definitely interesting that they chose her to be on the poster instead. And and that I found very interesting because when I found, um, because I watched, um, we have Purgation on uh, a streaming service up here called Tubi is where I watched it. And when I brought up the the cover image for it, I thought, oh, like, it, okay, so the, the lead role is this, like, little white girl as some kind of creepy ghost thing. So that's what I expected just from the image of the, like, that was presented. And the presentation really is not reflective of what the actual movie is. Yeah. So it, it's interesting to um, to hear from you as well that the marketing thought with that the distributors had come forward and said no 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 we can't put who is the lead role on your marketing materials because people aren't going to watch it mm-hmm. so that, that i mean that's very interesting to me and and just you know hearing that that actually is basically what happened yeah and i'm not a marketing major so maybe that was the right choice and maybe that is why the movie was more successful but I do feel bad that Tiffany, the lead actress, wasn't on the poster. You don't have control over, you know, once you sell the movie, it's the mm-hmm. distributors that do all the marketing for you. Right. 
it's unfortunate but i think like i think there is some truth in that like uh, and it's a it's a deep-seated problem in just audiences in north america is that they're less inclined to watch a subtitled movie and so yes if they are looking at a poster and they see somebody that's that's not just a white person yeah maybe they will deep down assume that yeah okay well this is a foreign movie so i don't really want to read because i know way too many people that have that attitude like i don't want to watch a movie with subtitles Mm -hmm. and i just wonder if we can get past that by just pushing it more Mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting like up in canada especially in ontario most people are bilingual right they speak french and english i'm surprised that you know watching a movie with subtitles would still be troublesome over there it depends on the crowds obviously but yeah yeah no it is still an issue I, for it is, sure. yeah. Yeah. people take a weird pride in not reading after high school i don't <laughs> get that but they do and and by the way you saying that about the cover art had you not dm'd me and asked me to post your movie i wouldn't have watched it based on that cover i just wouldn't have there was nothing if if it was the asian girl i would have watched it because all the cover art it's white girls all of it so maybe it's because i watched so many movies that i'm like desperate for somebody new not necessarily a different kind of horror but give me a different cast like can't we give somebody else a shot to scream through the woods and and climb the roof or whatever <laughs> it's always the same people so had i seen an asian an asian little girl i would have been like i'm watching that well, I think it is getting better in the last couple of years. Um, we are having more blended casts, um, which is awesome because that's the way it should be. I mean, that's the way society is. It's right. I, I don't just have white friends. <laughs> like my group of friends is all different colors, right? So why is movies just the same thing all the time? But it's changing in the last few years. It's good that it's changing because once you expand the creators, you get more stories that you normally wouldn't get you know unfortunately like for example in jordan peele's twilight zone a lot of those stories could not have been told by white people because it's just not it's not part of their experience and it's not a story that they're knowledgeable about um if you remember there's that episode where there's that uh camcorder that can rewind time Mm -hmm. um sorry no spoilers but it it was one of those uh, (laughs) episodes where i was like there's no way a white person could have come up with this story or directed it or you know made it possible you, right. you need a black creator behind the story it's so fucking frustrating that that got canceled my god wait that's news to me twilight zone got canceled yeah it didn't get picked up after season two. Oh my god that's i know it's ridiculous I, wow all oh. the best stuff it just doesn't last mm-hmm. i wonder I, why i wonder if it was this budget or or if it was people just not watching it I don't know, because I thought it was hugely successful. Uh, one of my friends um, was a director. Um, she actually directed the episode that took place in the museum, and she said it was an amazing experience. You know, it was a very supportive crew, and I, I was hoping to kind of follow in her footsteps for season three, but oh well, at least at least we got two seasons out of it. It could still get picked up by somebody it may get, Yeah, with, everything, with all the different streaming services now doing their own in-house productions it, it may yet get picked up by a, like a netflix or a prime or something like that or even cbs you see them they're well, on fire with yeah. the series well they are cbs right so once right. all access is kind of doing you know once once they change their thing it's it, who knows maybe they'll restart it hopefully they will 
This is the number one place for macabre, cults, classics, and horrors. For synopsis, reviews, and news, go to macabre.com. Thank you for listening. Signing out until the next one.